Welcome to The Spirit Explodes with Roger Kirby. This is study 21 in Acts of the Apostles, drawn from Acts chapter 23, verse 12, right through to chapter 26, verse 32, all about Roman justice. This lengthy section, though important to Luke in showing to Theophilus that Paul was innocent of any crime against Roman law, and providing the opportunity for Luke to recount the story of Paul's conversion for the third time, is of no great interest to us, so we will take it at the gallop. First, there is the rather amusing account of how Paul started out on this much-desired journey to Rome. Read chapter 23, verses 12 to 35. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than forty men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than forty of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul, so that he may be taken swiftly to the governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to 
present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. What is interesting here is that the young man, Paul's nephew, is able to gain access to the commander of the garrison. This suggests that he, and therefore Paul's family, were of some considerable status and rank. Their society was exceedingly status-conscious. Everyone knew where they stood in the hierarchy and acted accordingly. We've already seen this in the way that the commander reacted to the information that Paul was born a Roman citizen, while he had to purchase his. That this comparatively young man is able to speak to the senior authority suggests he was from a well-known and respected family. So, late in the evening, Paul set off for Rome, escorted by 470 Roman soldiers. Question 1. What would Paul's reaction to this have been likely to be? I don't know about you, but I think he would have seen this as a great comedy, and have been finding it hard not to roar with laughter. I want to go to Rome, Lord. Please could you supply me with a Roman escort? Oh dear, 470 is rather more than I expected. The letter from Commander Lysias is interesting. He puts the best possible slant on what happened, though it is not all strictly accurate. He rescued Paul before, not after. He realised he was a Roman citizen. The foot soldiers turned back after they had completed the more dangerous half of the journey to Caesarea. From the possible clash of arms, we turn to the clash of words, as two men, accomplished in the art of rhetoric, speak before Governor Felix. The first man is Tertullus, a hired lawyer. So we're going to read chapter 24, verses 1 to 9. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullius, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullius presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, 
asserting that these things were true. Tertullus's praise of Felix is a pack of lies. Felix was not one of the better Roman high officials. He was a brutal and sadistic man who eventually dealt with the Jewish people so badly that he had to be recalled to Rome. His accusations against Paul were all similarly wrong. At least, the only ones he could bring evidence about were. Paul had not done anything to desecrate the temple, but he had stirred up riots among the Jews in all the places he had visited. Paul is quick to latch on to the fact that they could prove nothing against him in Jerusalem. Obviously, he had realized that they had no witnesses against him from his missionary journeys. Roman court procedure insisted that accusers had to be present in court in person, and there were none such in this court, as we shall see as we read Paul's reply in verses 10 to 21. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean. When they found me in the temple courts doing this, there was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was on one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. All that Paul said was true, but it was all carefully related to events in Jerusalem. He said nothing about events during his travels, except for pointing out that there was nobody there with first-hand evidence of those events. He could have been found guilty of stirring up riots if his progress through Asia Minor and Greece had been considered. Now we're going to read verses 22 to 26. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysisia, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom, and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. 
as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid, and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent him for him frequently and talked with him. Felix is intrigued by this unusual prisoner and was prepared to argue with him, but soon found that this had mounted more to listening than talking. Presumably, Paul could have easily obtained his freedom with a bribe, but he did not want to do so. It is likely that his family back in Jerusalem or the church in Judea and Galilee would have been able to raise enough money for that. Question 2. In countries where bribes are expected, even for things like justice, should Christians be prepared to pay them? That is a difficult question to answer to cover all situations. Probably most local churches in such countries have decided what their policy is on such matters, and the individual Christian should fall into line with that collective decision. Now we're going to read from this chapter 24, verse 27, through to chapter 25, verse 12. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favour to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held in Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Paul made his defence. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything, deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you will go. This passage is all complicated political manoeuvring. Festus was a much better man than Felix, but he came to the job presumably with no background, and the Jews attempted to manipulate him without success. 
Paul realized that if he was taken to, to Jerusalem, he would be unlikely to come out alive, and therefore his best chance of getting to Rome was as a prisoner of the Romans. That this would also mean that he would be on trial for his life was of no consequence to him. So he appeals to Caesar, as every Roman was entitled to do under certain circumstances. Festus checks with his advisers and decides this case is of that type. But now the local king, Agrippa II, great-grandson of Herod the Great, turned up with his sister Bernice, a lady of easy virtue, to welcome Festus. And we read about that in verses 13 to 22 of this chapter 25. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. Francis sensibly asked for advice from Agrippa with his local knowledge. We'll read about that in verses 23 to 27. The next day Agrippa and Pernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome, but I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation I may have something to write, for I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Notice how Luke was carefully building up the case that Paul had done nothing wrong in Roman law. He was reminding Theophilus that a respectable Roman could become a Christian. We read on 
in chapter 26, verses 1 to 23. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. This is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles.
The third description of Paul's conversion follows much the same pattern as the previous ones. The bit about kicking against the goads is new. Goads were pointed sticks used to prod slow-moving beasts into moving faster. More interesting is the fact that Ananias does not figure in this account. The statements attributed to him previously being given as direct and more detailed statements from the Lord. Perhaps this was to protect Ananias from any interest by the authorities. Question 3. What is the crux of what Paul said? Once again, it is the resurrection of Jesus as the first to rise from the dead. Should this not still be the focal point of all evangelism? And for our final reading in this long sequence, we read verses 24 to 32 of this chapter 26. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning has driven you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long? I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free, if he had not appealed to Caesar. Luke doesn't give up. Paul is innocent. Thanks for listening. Come back to Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, where every day there is something added to help you in your life as a Christian disciple. Thank you.